Welcome to Talking About Forests, a podcast series hosted jointly by Dalberg Advisors and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Join hosts Dr. Anish Andheria, President of the Wildlife Conservation Trust, and Neerad Bhatnagar, partner at Dalberg, as they engage in stimulating conversations with researchers, conservationists, bureaucrats, and philanthropists on extremely pressing topics including governance, forest management, ecosystem services, wildlife crime, and human-wildlife conflict. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this episode of Talking About Forest, where we speak with Nigel Sizer about his journey with forest and conservation and learn about his experiences. Over to you, Nirat. Nigel is a globally recognized authority on forests, ecology, climate change, and development. Presently, he's the executive director of Preventing Pandemics at the Source. Formerly, he was in multiple roles as president of Rainforest Alliance, director of the forest program at the World Resources Institute, the Nature Conservancy, UNEP, among others. It's fascinating to know the kind of roles that you, Nigel, have played, and I'm sure we'll have an enriching discussion with you. So I welcome you once again. It is a delight to have you here with us. To get us started, how did your trust with forest and conservation come about? What were your motivations and inspirations? Well, thank you, Anish. It's very nice to be talking with you and Nirat today. And greetings to everybody here from near New York City, where I live. I fell in love with nature when I was a child. I'm not quite sure why, but I grew up in rural England, about two hours north of London, in a small town. And I found a lot of comfort walking and being with nature. My grandfather on my father's side was a good amateur naturalist, and I think that rubbed off on me. And then in my late teens, when I finished high school, I think a real turning point for me was I did some odd jobs, saved up some money, and it seems crazy now, but I I hitchhiked my way across Africa. I spent seven months in Africa exploring, just wandering around, and came back, you know, absolutely fascinated, intrigued, and committed to start university at the University of Cambridge, committed to really spending the rest of my life trying to understand, I guess, what we now call the global south, tropical ecology, and the interactions between that ecology and the people who live there, and all the development challenges that those areas face. So that was really how I started my journey. And then maybe the second really key turning point was after I finished my undergraduate studies in ecology, I ended up pursuing a PhD with Cambridge, but the fieldwork, three years of fieldwork was in the Brazilian Amazon. So I spent the next three years deep in the Amazon rainforest and spent many months in small camps deep in the forest doing pure ecological studies and becoming an expert on tropical rainforest ecology and on the Amazon. And that was really what kicked off my career subsequently. That's fantastic, uh, Nigel. So you worked at multiple organizations uh, in leadership positions at WRI, at the Nature Conservancy, the Rainforest Alliance, the UN, and now preventing pandemics at the source. Across all of these different roles, what are the different ways in which forest conservation gets thought about, gets framed? Uh, the different approaches like carbon sinks, uh, biodiversity, uh, payment for ecosystem services. How have you seen all of these patterns play out over two to three decades uh, in forest act- uh, programming? And what do you think will become more and more important going forward? Yeah, thank you, Nera. That's a wonderful question. Yeah, my career has taken me to very different parts of the solution, I suppose, or the struggle to find the solutions to how we can continue to develop society and economies while protecting and restoring what's left of the natural world around us. And forests really epitomize that struggle. 
We're continuing to lose tropical forests at a significant rate, especially uh, in countries like Indonesia, Brazil, the Congo Basin region. But there have also been some real successes. Some of the work I've done has been very much at the local level, working at the community level that work with RARE, for example. RARE is a US-based organization. And I led their work across Asia and the Pacific based in Indonesia. And we developed and ran a training program that built the capacity of local organizations, local government agencies that were working with local communities, with villages at the village level to help inspire local people to have more pride and care about the nature around them in their day-to-day -day lives. We used techniques called social marketing, basically to, to drive behavior change. And, and, and we didn't do it ourselves. We trained the local organizations how to do it. And this requires an intense understanding of how these local people view nature, interact with it, uh, where they get their information from, who they trust, so that you can gradually change their understanding and attitudes and behavior in ways that will improve their livelihoods and improve the outcomes for coral reefs, for local forests, and so on. So I've done that kind of work at the very local level, which really does work. It's really successful. And the key challenge there is to scale it up, right? A few villages is good, but it doesn't make much difference at a global scale. So the challenge with that really local work is how do we take that to thousands and thousands of villages and communities around the world. And that's what we were working on at RARE. It's a long journey. My work with World Resources Institute, one of the leading global think tanks based in Washington, DC, very different. At, you know, at the opposite end of the, the ecosystem of, of stakeholders and people working on these things. So there we would develop policy analysis at, at a high level, basically engaging with the world's elite, even with heads of state, government ministers, captains of industry, leaders of other environmental and development organizations to try to change policy. So this was a, a much more upstream approach with very different sorts of tools and techniques, highly analytical, extremely political, understanding the political dynamics of, of the world, of entire regions, of key countries, to see how to engage and influence those trajectories as effectively as possible in the interests of achieving sustainable development on a global scale. When that works, the impact can be absolutely incredible. Yeah, It can affect the lives of, of, of millions and millions of people, but it's hard. It's very hard. There are so many countervailing pressures and influences uh, and forces and interests that can make it very difficult to, to make those kinds of changes. So I've seen it at both ends and all of these different approaches are very important. They complement each other. We need hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of organizations working together, somewhat coordinated, a lot of it not coordinated, doesn't matter, pushing these different efforts at different levels. I mean, there in India, for example, you have literally tens of thousands of, of local organizations working to promote these kinds of changes. It's an incredible phenomenon in our society, an incredible richness, incredibly healthy for the future development of, of, of our countries. Right. That, that's wonderful to actually sort of just think through those two frames, the top-down frame and the bottom-up frame. From what you were saying, definitely behavior change is very important. And while it's very important, it's very difficult because of culture, because of the politics, because of the inequity. So I'm sure most people, you know, they focus on smaller projects where they are working with 
homogeneous community, maybe 100 villages or a particular district. But it's been a challenge to scale up any of these projects. So despite our understanding, despite the science, despite all the technology, while we have so many success stories in conservation, and I also believe and I've seen with my naked eyes that our victories are temporary and our losses are permanent. So in a situation like this, you know, there are two types of paradigms. One is the protected area network. I'm just back from the IUCN World Conservation Congress, and there were talks about securing 30% of our planet, both oceans and terrestrial ecosystems, basically making them devoid of human presence. And then there is another school in which you very eloquently mentioned about how important it is to respect land rights of people and look at own community-run conservation projects. So what are those big challenges that you think and what are the gaps that you see in scaling up this? And do we actually need to scale up or it will, we are better off working in smaller areas, maybe a large number of organizations and communities working in their own spaces rather than looking at a, you know, a generic solution for the country or for the planet? Yeah, thank you, Anish. That's, those are very important comments. I think like most things that, that we look closely at, Unfortunately, it's, it's just more complicated than that. And there's always a desire to try to simplify it, to look for simple solutions for the silver bullet answers, as we say. And for the most part, those don't exist. So if we take the protected areas approach, which has been enormously important, right? Let, I think we could say that's one of the very few, let's say approaches and solutions that has truly has scaled up globally since it began, but there are also many examples of protected areas, and I'm sure you can you could name name a long list of them that are not functioning well. What happens when a government sets up a protected area and removes the people who live there with the intention of protecting the biological diversity? I saw this very early on in my career when I was doing my ecological research in the Brazilian Amazon. In my spare time, I, I explored the region and got to know some of the very, very large protected areas near to Manaus. There were there was two that I got very involved with. One was called the Anabelianas Archipelago, an incredible network of hundreds of islands, ribbon-like islands, incredibly beautiful, in the Rio Negro, just upstream from Manaus, where the river is about 20 miles wide, if you can imagine that, with this ribbon-like network of hundreds and hundreds of islands. And there had been a lot of people who lived on those islands and harvested the acai and other palms and fruits and hunted and so on and made a simple livelihood from doing that. And they were removed from the islands by the government before I was there and, and basically pushed off the islands, in some cases at gunpoint, and forced to relocate nearby. So do you think those people were allies in helping to protect the biodiversity <laughs> on those islands. Of course not. They became enemies of the government protected areas agency. Their enforcement efforts couldn't stop them sneaking back in and hunting and clearing and so on. And it just did not work very well. Another area further upstream up the Rio Negro, the Jaú National Park, over 2 million hectares of almost untouched lowland tropical rainforest. At that time, it was the largest protected area in Brazil. And again, the government had pushed out people who lived there at gunpoint violently, people who'd been there for generations. These weren't indigenous people, but they were people who lived very closely with nature and harvested the rubber 
and other products and sold those to make a living in very traditional ways. And so there was just tremendous conflict and actually you know, basic human rights abuses by the government to, to try to protect the nature in these areas. And that simply does not work very well. So very early on in my career, I got involved in efforts to look at how do you work with the people who live in these areas, who have a deep understanding of the nature, who, yes, may be involved in some activities which are harmful. They might be overhunting some of the large mammal species or large bird species, for example, and, and severely damaging those populations. Uh, but let's work together with those communities to see how that behavior can be shifted a little bit in exchange for better healthcare support, improving the schools, providing other inputs to those communities that they desperately need, and working together to protect the forest as a result, developing ecotourism programs, for example, developing sustainable non-timber forest products that come from the forest that those communities can earn a living from. All these sorts of things have been successfully done on a pretty large scale in quite a few countries. And, but it's a much more complicated story than saying, we're going to protect this area. The people are going to go somewhere else. We're going to put the people over there. They're going to do agriculture. That, first, it doesn't work very well, creates a lot of conflict and unhappiness. Secondly, it's actually often illegal to do that because of the basic rights of those, of those populations, although governments still do those kinds of things. So I think it's much more nuanced, much more subtle. We need approaches that involve deep understanding of the relationships between people and nature where they live and working slowly and carefully with those communities uh, to improve their lives and to protect the biodiversity. I don't think other approaches work very well. Then you need at a higher level, the resources to do that, right? To do that well is, is not cheap. If you've got people being trained, experts, scientists, community engagement specialists, linguists, if you're working with very traditional communities, anthropologists, psychologists, communications experts. These are all the sorts of skills that need to be brought to bear to do this well, and that costs money. So we need more resources to do this well. We need national governments to put more resources into this, and we need the wealthier governments around the world to provide more support to, to countries that don't have so much resources to do this. They already do that through various funding mechanisms, but that needs to be expanded dramatically if we're to achieve the kinds of targets that you mentioned, Annie, of protecting 30% of the world's ecosystems and land area by 2030. See, from what you're saying, I think the Indian government is trying to create inviolate spaces for large mammals. Uh, in doing so, they're obviously trying to protect um, biodiversity, reduce loss of biodiversity, which is rampant because of the current rates of degradation. And they are offering uh, packages to people and it's a voluntary relocation program. And uh, to our surprise, a lot of villagers have actually come forward and voluntarily moved out of some of our tiger reserves. To get people out of the forest against their will is probably not right, but maybe if there is a middle path where people can choose, but of course, to re-establish a community in an alien landscape where competition is high is, is very challenging. So while displacement is easier, but to make sure that the communities actually can be absorbed in the mainstream is a challenge still. But there are a few success stories in India. Uh, yes, uh, that's a very important addition that you're making there. And like I said at the beginning, it's more complicated. So you're describing another key piece of this. It is important 
to try to reduce human impact. What you're saying is basically the rights of these people are respected. It's a voluntary program. Hopefully it's very carefully designed with people running it who have the right kind of sort of social science expertise who understand these communities and, you know, very careful long-term follow-through with these people when they're relocated voluntarily, because as you said, all sorts of other issues could then develop once they're relocated somewhere else. It's a very challenging type of thing to do, but certainly has a role to play in some places. I, I absolutely agree. I have a follow-up around that, Nigel, and it'll be lovely to actually get Anisha's perspectives on that as well. So the design of such programs is, like you said, a very careful balancing act, right? Which needs to take different objectives, balance them, design it well, have a program design process that has different kinds of voices. And, and yet, on the other hand, a lot of it is dependent on stability in the political circles, right? Because these things take time and you need consistent approaches to work over long periods of time. So have you seen... Uh, that to be a problem, Nigel, have you seen that there are enough places in the world, enough countries where there has been a consistent approach? Or have you seen a lot of flip-flop where the government changes and the politics change and then suddenly the new approach doesn't work as well? There's a lot of you know disruption. What's your experience been? And then Anish, I'd love to get the India flavor uh, for the same question from you. Yeah, thank you, Nirat. That is something I am very concerned about. I think we've seen how dramatic politics can be and how quickly things can change in the last decade, right? So I'm here in the United States, and I'm sure there in India, you saw lots of news about Donald Trump, right? So who, who came into power immediately after Barack Obama. And just an extraordinary contrast in so many ways, uh, including in very important aspects of policy and public funding and taxation and enforcement of environmental regulations and so on. If you look across Europe, you will see very clearly the rise of authoritarian populist governments in, in parts of Eastern Europe. The environmental groups in the UK are very concerned uh, about the consistency of policy now on some of these things in the UK and in other countries in other parts of Europe. The increasing polarization in our politics, how this is related to how people are getting their information, right? Talk about complexity and bringing different types of expertise to bear on this problem. But this takes us into a whole different piece of this story, which is the increasing fragility of policy consensus in very important countries, very large countries around the world, and of course, many other countries as well, to a dramatic degree. So this is a great concern to me, because as I think Anish said, the victories are often short-lived and the losses are permanent. If a government doesn't follow through, on good conservation policies, then large areas of habitat can be lost. And those are not gonna be restored in less than several hundred years. And we're not gonna have a government necessarily coming back in with that kind of time frame. This is a very serious part of the problem. And I think it behooves all of us working in this area to also become a lot more savvy, to understand more the political ecology within which we're working and to be engaged in those politics and encouraging others to do that as well. I think my understanding of the game of conservation, really, and the politics. I, I, and this is my view, that if left to countries without any pressure from a consortium to try to maximize development, and even the well-meaning one will eventually shortchange the needs of the ecosystem. The pandemic is not uh, making it easy either. It's giving excuses to several governments to relax their laws to uh, 
expedite infrastructure growth. Even when they recognize that climate change is big and that uh, loss of biodiversity and climate change are connected. So all this is known now. Definitely, I think uh, politics has a big role to play and uh, therefore IUCN, therefore CITES, and these are you know consortiums where more than 100, 100 countries have signed up. It is very important, therefore, to put pressure on countries because the developing nations are always going to look for rapid development now and they will justify it. But the problem that even Nigel touched upon is that the damages that because of sh short-sightedness will take hundreds, actually thousands of years to, for recovery. You know, for instance, just the six, six inch of soil takes thousand years. So a forest can manufacture six inches of soil in thousand years. But a degraded patch can cause erosion at such a high pace that it can lose about two feet of soil in just one monsoon. So it throws back the ecosystem 4,000 years. And we really don't have that kind of time. It's very important that we think globally and work locally. And so I think that's where you know other countries, countries that have the finances should come together and, and then support conservation nations where the biodiversity is high, but they don't have resources. And uh, therefore all the financial resources is also a shared resource really. Because if we don't have a planet, we really don't have a rich and a poor country anymore. So nations like Brazil, India, China, Indonesia, and a lot of African will have to join hands. So you have several you know, groups of countries when it comes to policy, when it comes to international regulations and so on and so forth. It's high time that we form a consortium of countries who are high on biodiversity. So like you have SARC, you have a lot of other such groups. We should have a group where all the biodiversity rich nations come together and therefore come and come up with a, a strategy which can then be supported by other nations. And that's what I feel, Nira. Thanks for really pointing out the need for international orchestration and, and even international kind of resourcing and maybe even pressures uh, and commitments. So thanks for that. I, I want to move now to the work that you're doing, Nigel, preventing pandemics at the source. And the question is in two parts, right? First part is just the basics of why is this topic really important? Now, COVID has obviously made this this topic of animal-human kind of spillovers, uh, pandemics, really top of mind for almost everyone. But just for the sort of lay listener, it would be great if you can explain very briefly what are the risks that uh, exist. And B, then moving on to your work at preventing pandemic at the source, just talk us through the genesis of this program, the approach and the strategy you're adopting, and what do you hope to achieve through this? Yes, thank you, Nirat. I'm sure most people who are listening to this, life has taken unexpected turns since this global pandemic began in, in February last year and emerged presumably in China uh, a few months before that. So this is not what I expected to be working on now. But as I started to think about what was going on as an ecologist, as a tropical ecologist especially, I learned a lot. I became more and more intrigued by this whole area of science, which I had not looked, but many scientists have been working on for many decades. Many scientists predicted exactly this kind of pandemic, exactly this kind of virus, a coronavirus that would spread through, through droplets in the air, that would be able to move around the planet within a matter of days or weeks due to air travel and so on, and cause catastrophic health and economic impacts. So this was predicted by the scientists who work on this kind of stuff. And it's remarkable, I think, as with much of the work being done on climate change, where many of the impacts we see on climate change were predicted, in some cases, many decades ago, accurately predicted, we now see 
that policymakers did not respond to that advice. And basically what's going on here is that all of the pandemics, if you go back 100 years, there have been seven or eight major pandemics. All of them except one have been caused by viruses, which somehow managed to jump over from wildlife into humans. The flus that spread around the world, the great Spanish flu of 1918, which killed tens of millions of people, HIV, AIDS, SARS, a number of other illnesses that didn't reach pandemic levels, but, but were very scary and are still out there like Ebola and MERS and the hantaviruses and this current coronavirus that, that causes COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they all started off living more or less, you know, happily and quietly in other wildlife, bats, birds, and rodents primarily, and made the jump over. And by the way, we've all been hearing a lot about this possible lab leak in China, which sort of confuses that story or, or, or contradicts it. And actually, there's, there's what you may not have seen is that new research has come out literally just in the last few weeks, as scientists have looked more carefully at bat populations in northern Laos, near to the border with southwestern China, near to the border with Yunnan province in China. And they have actually discovered virus, varieties of virus in wild bat populations in northern Laos that look very similar in, in very key ways to the SARS coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19. Significant new evidence that shows that this pandemic was probably caused by a virus that moved from bats into humans. Now, what gets really fascinating about this for me, just apart from the personal side of dealing with this with my family, which has been quite dramatic and challenging at, at certain points, but as a scientist and as a biologist as well, if these viruses are moving from wildlife into humans, why is that happening? And are there ways in which we can just reduce the risk of that happening in the future? And as we look more closely at that, the answer is yes, there are absolutely things that could be done that would reduce the risk of the next pandemic. And let's remember that the next pandemic, or even this pandemic, could be much worse than we're seeing right now. We've seen this virus that causes COVID-19 mutate dramatically to become much more transmissible with the Delta variant. We might see a further evolution of this virus that allows it to break through the vaccine protection. The other thing we've seen from this pandemic, which I think is so critical for us to learn the painful lessons from, and for our governments especially to learn the painful lessons from, is that we could say every government in the world, but let's say just about every government in the world has failed to respond in, in, you know, perfectly to address this. So even the most well-resourced governments with the best healthcare systems, the most well-functioning institutions have lost to this virus. And the, the most recent example, of course, is, is New Zealand, where they kept this at bay for many months. But finally, when it mutated and became the Delta variant, they were unable to stop it spreading. And they've now switched policy dramatically there. And we'll see significant consequences of that in New Zealand. And we've seen you know, an absolute disaster in countries that surely viewed themselves as the, you know, among the, let's say, the smartest and the best resourced in the world, countries like the UK and the United States, right? Absolute disaster in their response to this for all sorts of complicated and important reasons. So as we look at the risk of this happening again, we can see that relying on governments to 
stop a pandemic in its tracks and protect the citizens of its country once a new illness is spreading. That is not a good strategy to deal with future pandemics. It's very important for governments to do everything that they can once an outbreak has happened, as many of them have been, but that won't stop it spreading. It will save some lives, but many other people will die. If we can stop these before they start, then that obviously is the best possible outcome. And my final point on that is the enormous inequities that this pandemic has exposed. So we see vastly different health outcomes for the rich and the poor, right? Primarily around financial capacity from this pandemic. And of course, many of the poor people are black and brown people here in the United States, in the global South, who've suffered vastly worse health outcomes, death, disease, debilitating long-term illness from this pandemic. We've done a terrible job rolling out vaccines to the world, even though we were brilliant at developing those vaccines in record time. So looking forward, we need a very different approach to address this uh, and to get ready before something like this happens and to stop something like this happening again. So that's what we're focused on with our initiative, which is called Preventing Pandemics at the Source. And there's a three-pronged strategy uh, that you've adopted. One is a scientific task force uh, plus research. Second is a fund for, for pandemic prevention. Third is a, a public awareness campaign approach. So, so can you just help us uh, with uh, how these three things connect? What change are you hoping to make through these pathways? Yeah, so we're, we're involved in various activities. First of all, we pulled together a an alliance, a consortium, or I get, we call it a coalition, the Coalition for Preventing Pandemics at the Source which includes several leading public health organizations and experts and some of the world's leading environmental organizations as well. In a more fundamental way, we're bridging what turns out to be a huge gap between the world of public health and the world of ecological science. We've modified that ecosystem enormously, but fundamentally what we're talking about here is how our species relates to the other species around us. Most of the people working in those fields simply don't look at that interaction and there's limited understanding of that interaction. So fundamentally, we're trying to bridge that and bring together experts in those different fields to start to work together to look at this challenge. So the basic science here is really important. One of the first things that people will tell us is, well, how can you stop a pandemic before it starts? How do you know what to do? So getting the science clear on that is really important when we're talking to senior policymakers who are making decisions about how billions of dollars, in some cases even trillions of dollars, are going to be spent to, to address these types of risks. So we worked with the Harvard School of Public Health and they convened a group of scientists from around the world, including leaders from India, from Brazil, from Europe, from the WHO and other organizations, a small group of scientists came together with Harvard's help to review the existing science and all of this. And they produced a report independently, which guides us in our actions and basically says, yes, we can stop the risk of spillover of these viruses dramatically. It's all about looking at how humans are interacting with wildlife, which means getting into the wildlife trade wildlife markets, wildlife restaurants, and so on, the pet trade, and the enormous trade in live animals, live exotic animals within countries and around the world, including huge numbers that are shipped to the United States here for the pet trade. All of that represents, to some extent, a risk of a future spillover. So looking at what can be done there and looking 
at land use change, at deforestation, at people moving into these frontier forest areas in the tropics and the subtropics where these virus varieties are most diverse and in southwestern China, in mainland Southeast Asia, across Central and West Africa, across the Amazon region, looking at what needs to change there to reduce the risk of spillover as people are moving into those forest areas. So there's ways to, to change those activities, to reduce some of those activities. This costs a lot of money. We've looked at how much it would cost to do this at scale around the world. And you're looking at numbers, something like 10 to $20 billion a year in spending would significantly reduce the risk of future pandemics at the source, right, before they even start. So that's a huge amount of money. Well, actually, is it though? I mean, if you look at what the just the United States and Europe have spent to protect their economies during this pandemic, just in direct spending, that number is about 1,000 times as much as we are saying needs to be spent globally to reduce the risk of future pandemics. So we've spent vast you know, orders of magnitude more than that just responding to this pandemic. And that's not even considering, because we can't, you know, I don't believe you can calculate this, but not even considering the cost of the human lives lost and the human suffering that has come with that, right? We will be approaching a million lives lost here in the United States, probably by the time this is ending, which is an extraordinary number. And actually in our coalition, we benefit enormously from organizations who represent some of these affected communities, represent thousands of people who have lost loved ones to COVID, represent the grassroots communities who don't have good access to healthcare in this country and around the world, who are just desperately calling for a different approach to this problem. So the science is really key. The funding is really key. And simply building understanding, not so much of the public, which is hard to do, right? To do mass communications to the public about this is quite difficult. Instead, we're really focused on the top level decision makers around the world in, in key countries, especially the G20 countries, who are making decisions right now about preparing. They, a lot of them talk about pandemic preparedness, preparing for future pandemics. We're trying to fundamentally change that perspective and say, yes, preparing for future pandemics is very important, but how about preventing them fundamentally? How about actually stopping them from happening as well and trying to do a lot more on that? And by the way, if we come back to the earlier parts of our conversation today, a lot of the things that we're saying would be good to prevent future pandemics are also really good to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to address climate change, are really good to protect biodiversity and improve the ecological health of the planet. So this is win. Maybe there's a few more wins in there as well that we could go into. But to us, this seems like a no-brainer that, that needs attention from the world's top policymakers. So that's the journey that we're on with our coalition. Yeah, it's a really powerful idea. Uh, so I wish you the best there. So Anish, uh, over to you. Yeah, so I think you are best positioned to actually be able to see with different lenses. And that's what we need, where you look at communities on one end, international policy at the other, land tenure, securing natural ecosystems at one end. And so that brings me to the next question. And that's about the need for good quality data and monitoring by the Global Forest Watch. So can you throw some light on that? Because in there lies the answer to the solutions that we need to kind of look for when it comes to protecting billions of people from future, even more disastrous pandemics that are probably looking into our eyes straight. Thank you, Anish. The Global Forest Watch is a project that I led at WRI, the World Resources Institute 
that developed over many years. We first launched it in about 1997, 1998. So going back 22, 23 years ago as a very sort of simple low technology effort to work with key countries around the world to help them better map out what was happening to their forests. So using at that time, relatively rudimentary technology and a lot of expert opinion to produce maps and publish them and try to build understanding about the state of their forests, who was in those forests, which companies had concessions, where for logging, for mining, how agriculture was impacting on those forests and so on. And it was quite effective in some countries in generating very good debates and discussion about how policy around those forests needed to evolve. So then fast forward to 2013, 2014, very different technology was by then available. And we set out to create what we called then Global Forest Watch 2.0, which aimed to be near real time, if not real time, easy access, free access to the information on a very easy to use platform to everyone everywhere in their own language, you know, updated continuously. We were able to fortunately get major financial support from several governments to develop this partnership with several NASA space agency agencies in the United States and some international agencies as well. And it started to benefit from the increasing availability of very high resolution, very low cost satellite imagery, which has continued to develop since then. But it was still extremely difficult to do this. It benefited enormously from an academic team at the University of Maryland, led by a brilliant professor called Professor Matt Hansen, who led a team there that developed an approach using you know, massive computers to analyze enormous amounts of satellite imagery at the same time. Google became a partner and that transformed some of the uh, computational capacity behind this as well. And in 2014, we launched Global Forest Watch 2.0, which you can, anyone can see online. It's developed a lot since then. If you go to globalforestwatch.org and you can zoom in and out all over the world and see what's happening to forests in near real time. You can see where fires are burning. You can see where large companies are clearing the forest as it happens. And this becomes a crucial tool to create accountability of governments, of companies, of individuals and communities who may or may not be managing those forests well. And our idea, our vision was to achieve extreme transparency so that people can see what's happening. But then the key step, which Global Forest Watch doesn't do, so it's not the answer, it's just one piece, a critical piece of this. But the key step then is taking action based on that information. Global Forest Watch is an information platform, brings organizations together. It helps create the conditions to help groups work together. But the really critical step then is taking action on the ground. So that goes back to the story I was telling about Brazil's experience, right? And in fact, Global Forest Watch 2.0 was inspired by the efforts in Brazil. We saw the Brazilian government using satellite imagery very effectively. And basically we wanted to turn that into a global system and make it completely open access so everyone could use it. It wasn't just a system that the government was able to use and manage. So the Brazilian experience really inspired us to do this and Brazilian scientists were very important in this work. But from Brazil, we also know the other pieces that are needed, which is the enforcement, the incentives, the action on the ground, and primarily led by government, right? There's only so much that organizations like mine or Anish's can do 
when we see something happening that shouldn't be happening. It's government that has the power and the responsibility to enforce the law if it's illegal clearing, to put incentives in place if it's legal activity that they want to change, to be consistent in how they do that, to address corruption in their own agencies where that may be a factor and so on. So I think the, the key next step here is to see governments stepping up in a much more committed way to use the kind of information that Global Forest Watch provides around the world to change the way in which they're managing forests. Thanks, Major. And there's a connected question to this. So we are trying to look at what's happening um, to our forests. We know what pandemic has done. We know that there is much more awareness about the connectedness between pandemics, forest degradation, between climate change, loss of biodiversity. There's a lot more willingness now to collaborate for conservation. You know, how do you think is the piece of forest management going to pan out in the next decade? Yes, thanks, Anish. Well, it's always foolish to try to predict the future. I think if I have learned anything, I've learned that's not a wise thing to try to do. But there are some things that I think it's safe to predict. It's safe to predict that for a while, at least we're going to continue to lose very precious forest resources. It's safe to predict that concern about climate change, as people see the direct impacts of that, even on their own lives, on national economies, all over the world, and the unpredictability that brings to the world's weather systems and so on, that concern about climate change is going to grow dramatically. It's already high. It's going to go far higher among politicians in the coming decade because so much is needed to address it and, and far less is being done than what's needed. So that problem is going to get much more dramatic before we start to see the level of action that's needed to address it. We will see increasing understanding about the importance of protecting biological diversity, the richness of life on earth, which we are losing, which we are damaging almost everywhere. And the increasing understanding that that complexity and the difficult science around that is so important to maintaining ecological stability, a healthy planet. And as I was, I was saying earlier, healthy people protecting our health on this planet. So concern and understanding about all these things is gonna grow. And that will mean a lot more political will and resources to protect and manage forests and other ecosystems more sustainably. So I'm optimistic that we will see a very dramatic increase in the effort, in the resourcing for the kind of work that we've talked about on this podcast over the next decade. I expect we will see some enormous successes in some parts of the world. I would predict that we will see dramatic success again in parts of the Amazon region as the politics in that region, especially Brazil, change again. I think there's enormous scope for some very good progress in parts of the Congo Basin and West Africa. And Indonesia is getting onto a good track with some of this. I'd like to see countries like India and China and Brazil, you know, the, the major countries of, of the global south, the emerging economies, which are going to increasingly dominate the global economy, I'd like to see them playing a much larger role internationally on these issues. So joining the efforts of the Europeans, the United States, and, and so on, who have been carrying a heavier weight on this financially, internationally, quite rightly, but that now starts to need to balance out and we need to, those voices need to be at the table making, helping make these really big global decisions and putting resources on the table to address these challenges. And I predict that we will see some regions and some countries suffering terribly 
because they do not prioritize taking these actions because of their politics, because of other factors that makes it may make it very hard to prioritize these things. And I hope that we will all quickly learn from those tragedies as they unfold and redouble our efforts globally to try to help with that. So that's what I expect. So I would say I'm optimistic. I think we will see a big turnaround in the next decade or two. I'm very concerned about the impact that climate change will have in the meantime on these ecosystems, which is complicated and hard to predict, but we already see that beginning. And that will make these efforts harder. But I'm convinced that we're smart enough. And when the crisis deepens, we will come together politically to put the resources out there that are needed to address this, as we are seeing in some ways in the response to this pandemic. We've seen extraordinary levels of effort, not always the smartest and best designed, but incredible levels of effort from, from many governments to address this pandemic. We need to see a similar kind of effort and urgency around climate change, forests, biodiversity loss, and addressing the human well-being and human rights issues associated with that in the coming decade. This has been wonderful. Uh, thanks, Nigel. Thank you for listening to Talking About Forests. We hope the conversation sparked some ideas. To learn more about the guests and our work, do check out the show notes. And don't forget to tune in to the other episodes.